Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Joel Selvin to discuss his book, Here Comes the Night, The Dark Soul of Burt Burns and the Dirty Business of Rhythm and Blues. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today Joel Selvin is returning to discuss his book, Here Comes the Night. The Dark Soul of Burt Burns and the Dirty Business of Rhythm and Blues. Joel, welcome back. Great to be here. Cool. And so the subtitle of this book threw me for the longest time. I think the first time and a half I read the book, I kept looking for the dark soul of Burt Burns. I kept expecting him to do something horrible. But finally, when I saw the movie, um, Bang, the Burt Burns story, which you were heavily involved in, you just came out and said it. The dark soul is something he expressed in his music. Well, I, I was hoping for something a little bit more poetic than just uh, um, referring to soul music. Uh, I was also uh, ah, pun. A in, pun. In, interested. In, it's not really a pun. Uh, it's a multi-layered uh, meaning. Uh, it, he was a Russian Jew uh, with a tremendously dark secret in his life which was that he was going to die at an early age. And he didn't share that with people. Uh, and uh, it informed, as far as I can tell, his every waking hour. Uh, and then you also have to like look at the songs. Uh, that They're not really like the sort of teenage sonatas that, say, Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich produced, or uh, Barry Mann and, and Cynthia Wheel. They're much darker, much weightier, much heftier, a lot of crying going on, a lot of tears. Uh, um, and there, there's one song, sort of obscure, that really discusses the sands of time going through the hourglass. So uh, that was the single definitive uh, fact of, of, of Burt Burns' life, that at he, age 14, he contracted rheumatic fever and was told he wouldn't live to be 21 years old. 
He did live to be 37. And and uh, one of his contemporaries, a fellow Brill Building songwriter of the period, uh, Bobby Darren, had a very similar condition. Very similar. And uh, Darren died in the middle of an eight-hour uh, heart procedure uh, at a similarly early age. Uh, Burns could never quite work himself up to the heart surgery because, keep in mind, in 1965-66, uh, open-heart surgery was a little bit like flying to the moon. Yeah, cutting-edge stuff and very risky. And hopefully we're not going to see a wave of this, of young people being affected by things like this because of COVID, but it's a very real possibility. So he had this shadow over him his whole life. He was a little bit cosseted by his parents who encouraged him to play piano um, once they discovered how vulnerable he was. But it took him a full decade of his 20s before he really became a professional songwriter, producer. What did he do in that intervening 10 years, and what was his musical passion in that period? So uh, it's the, the, a lot of that stuff is uh, you know lost to the mist of history. There was a marriage to a gal from Philadelphia that uh, not much is known about. Um, there's uh, He didn't work. He didn't, have, didn't really take on many jobs. He, he mooched off his mother. Uh, parents ran a very successful dress shop. I think he um, was acting out the uh, uh, resentment and uh, um, anger that he felt over the uh, uh, the heart issue. Uh, really was, you know, just like a, 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 a ne'er-do-well with nothing going on. But he loved the mambo. Mambo was a thing in New York in the late 40s. Uh, this is before there was rock and roll. And um, the uh, Palladium was a, a Latin music uh, the club on Broadway, was kind of like the center of this uh, booming Latin music thing that was happening there. Uh, came out of the uh, uh, work of the the Machitos uh, Afro-Cuban Orchestra uh, and uh, his uh, brilliant arranger, uh, Mario Bauza. And they, were, they, they were Cuban guys that put together a jazz band and combined the Afro-Cuban sounds of their youth and their training with the big band swing sounds. And, and, and it hit a nerve uh, with uh, and uh, for some reason, especially uh, uh, young white Jewish uh, uh, guys and gals. Uh, so um, it was a hip thing in 1947, 48, 49, 50, 51, the Mambo thing. Uh, you know, like Marlon Brando used to hang out at the Palladium when he wasn't working on Broadway. Um, Burns was so taken with this uh, that he and, and, and uh, one of his... Uh, early partners, a guy named Sid Bernstein, who would go on to considerable success in the music business, actually put out a couple of records in like 1950 on some, you know, momentary uh, record label. And uh, then Burns and another one of his ne'er-do-well friends actually went to Cuba to just sort of drink it in just before Castro took over. And when he came back, from that Cuban trip, he really was like, what, about 29 and 30, like that. And and that's when he just really sort of zeroed in 
on the songwriting thing. You uh, got a couple of uh, uh, partners and they opened an office at 1650 Broadway. And uh, I found his uh, original uh, demo tape for um, Mellon Music, who signed him in 1960, uh, partly a songwriter and partly as a song plugger, uh, $50 a week. And uh, there's a little bit of the Cubano thing on those first 10 songs, but it's not like the, the thing that it would become. Because right away, like his first real big chart record, a uh, little bit of soap by the Jarmels, has that clave driving it, giving it that south of the border kind of feel. And pretty soon he tuned into this whole m- incorporating the mambo into rock and roll. The, the, the prime example of that would be his uh, record with the Isley Brothers of his song Twist and Shout, where it's really... It's just written to the chord progressions of La Bamba and and or or, or, or uh, the Cuban national anthem Guantanamera. Same same tune, same chord progressions, same rhythm. It really is just a sort of like rejiggering of, of those standards. Yeah, and let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Soap by the Jarmels, which was the first hit that Burt Burns got. And that was Burt Burns' composition, A Little Bit of Soap, performed by the Jarmels, which was his first taste of success. And what you're talking about with Twist and Shout is something that is massively, massively important. I didn't really get it until I read Ned Sublet's books on the history of Cuban music and listened to his lectures about uh, Louie Louie, which is another Cuban-influenced song. And this, it's something that, as a guitar player, I just learned it as a three-chord progression. And I didn't realize that it's a two-bar three-chord progression and that before that, you know, the blues progression is three chords over 12 bars. It's a very different thing. And it's an Afro-Cuban thing. And Burt Burns is one of the key vectors for transmitting this mambo, these mambo rhythms, which which trace all the way back to sub-Saharan Africa in a very direct and traceable way, and brings them into R&B and rock and roll. And it's one of the key things that makes rock. But the first time he goes into the studio to cut, twist, and shout, it doesn't work. And he's working with the hottest producer in the business. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, let me say that I think Ned Sublet is a genius and that he should be awarded a MacArthur grant. I would second uh, and that. His, his books are, are all just amazing to us all. So thanks for dropping that name. Uh, Burns had met with uh, Jerry Wexler, who was uh, the the one of the partners running Atlantic records. uh, And uh, he was an aspiring songwriter, song plugger working for Robert Mellon and, and really glad to be demonstrating his songs for Wexler. Wexler sort of liked what he heard and, and, and 
had a couple of things that he thought he wanted to do something with one of which was twist and shout. And, uh, he took it into the studio, but he wanted to use a 19 year old kid from the California coast who had showed up and, and, and come under the influence of Lieber and Stoller, uh, you know, hot kid from the coast. Uh, and this was his second Atlantic session. He'd done an, uh, a session before, uh, uh, but you know, nothing special. I think it was Billy Storm. Um, and this is where Phil Spector enters the picture. And Spectre, of course, being this 19-year-old hotshot and obnoxious character, you know, he has to impose himself on this piece of material so that, you know, his imprint is the dominant factor. I mean, that's the Phil Spectre plan. Uh, and he straightens out all the turnarounds. He puts it in a 12-bar structure and turns it into a, a blues shuffle. And gives it to a perfectly decent couple of singers. Uh, uh, they're called the Top Notes. Derek Martin uh, later was sort of famous for that song, Daddy Rolling Stone. But uh, the, 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 they were nobodies. And Spectre was trying to, you know, m you know make his bones. And uh, it, it was obvious to Burns, who had to witness this whole thing, uh, that they just screwed up the song. And and he told Wexler as much, and Wexler told him to just go sit the fuck down and shut up. Uh, so it would be half a year or more later when uh, Burns produced the records with the Isley Brothers. And this is a key point in his career, because he's starting to sell songs, and he sees what can happen to your song as Phil Spector completely goofs up the first shot at Twist and Shout. So he was not going to record Twist and Shout again unless he was producing it. And Luther Dixon was running A&R over at um, Wand and Scepter Records, uh, had the Isley Brothers, who were pretty much losing a lot of elevation from their 1959 hit Shout. Uh, and he was trying to get them to record um, songs by another unknown songwriter named Burt Bacharach, uh, that were a little bit more complex and tricky. And the Icy Brothers were uh, in a bad mood about the whole thing. And uh, the, 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 there was a lot of, uh, let's say, conflict in the studio. Uh, and then uh, the last 10 minutes of the uh, session, oh, Bert, you know, here's Bert Burns. He's got this song you guys are going to do. And, and in the last 10 minutes of the three-hour session, Bert produced twist and shout with these, you know, irate and, and, and pissed off Isley brothers who wondered what they were doing with this Patty Jew guy anyway, you know, uh, <laughs> and twist and shout would be one of the very biggest hits the Isley brothers had, uh, uh, at that point, it never reached, uh, like the high chart positions, like a top 10, but what it did do was it st stayed in like that 30 to 20 position all summer long. So it sold a ton of records and really put the Isley Brothers back in business and uh, put Burt Burns on the map in a way. Uh, he had other records happening at the same time, which was a sort of, uh, uh, you know, co conversion that, that really helped him step forward in the New York R&B scene. And then, of course, a year later, the Beatles recorded on their first album, 
And it, it, it was a hit worldwide outside the United States long before, uh, you know, I want to hold your hand, hit the charts here. It led to Burns going to England uh, in 1963 uh, before the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and all that, you know, just to see what was going on over there. You know, so get a lot of royalty checks. You know, <laughs> Let's see what this is about. And, and you know, that led to him producing them and discovering Van Morrison and on and on. And Jimmy Page. And this is another time where Burns is a key vector, where he not only brings the Mambo in a big way, he wasn't the only one doing it, but he's one of the leaders of it, bringing the Mambo into R&B and pop. And he also is the literal personal bridge between the Brill Building and Britain. But let's give a little context on the Brill Building at this time. I think a lot of our listeners know this, but it's always good to review. You've mentioned Jerry Wexler from Atlantic Records, who's a key sort of founder of this movement, if you want to call it that. And then Lieber and Stoller, who are kind of the first independent production team. And they are very much the Johnny Appleseeds of the Brill Building. And and they worked with Burt Burns, even co-wrote songs with him, which is something they very rarely did. I think Phil Spector is the only one that jumps into my head as a, as an obvious co-write with uh, Stoller. And and they weren't alone. Don Kirshner's Alden Music, you've mentioned Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, uh, Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich, and also uh, Carol King and Gary Goffin. Um, so there's, you know, and Otis Blackwell, Doc Palmas, and Mark Schumann. There's this whole movement. And there's session musicians like King Curtis on sax, uh, Paul Griffin, the pianist, Gary Chester on drums. That that, are, And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But there's a great team of session musicians, frequently jazz musicians, uh, that play on the same sessions. And you call this an enchanted village inhabited by a tribe of crazy geniuses. I love that. How did Burt Burns fit oh. into that dynamic? You know, the book is such an ensemble piece. Uh, it, it, it encompasses a, a, a you know vast amount of that territory. I mean, uh, it's a biography of Lieber and Stoller. It's uh, a, a history of Atlantic Records. Uh, it's an account of uh, uh, Kirshner and Nevins and Aldon music. Uh, and uh, you, you mentioned Palmas and, and, and Mort Schumann, uh, and, and they were up in um, the uh, with the Arbor Box in, in Hill and Range music at the top of the Brill Building. So all these things were going on in a couple of city blocks in, um, in Midtown Manhattan. And the thing about Burns was that he turned out to be a gear that pushed up against all of them. And I, I, you can look around. They were all closely associated. They all knew each other. They all drank at the same bars and ate at the same restaurants and used the same musicians. And, you know, they were in, in, in quiet and, and, and friendly competition with one another, and they collaborated. So it was like this community uh, but Burns was sort of just the, the, the guy that ended up working with them all. You know, he was on, uh, the flip side of an early hit with, uh, Burt Backrack, who was going to have his first hit on the other side of the record that Burns was on. He was part of Atlantic records almost from the start. Uh, he worked with a whole array 
of arrangers uh, from Teatro Wiltshire to Jerry Ragavoy, who turned into this great collaborator and had a terrific career of his own. Uh, he worked with the, uh, Luther Dixon and Florence Greenberg over at Scepter and Swan, uh, um, uh, Wand. Uh, it, it, and and uh, uh, Juggy uh, uh, Murray of Sioux Records, who was really one of the two black uh, label owners, he worked with uh, Juggy. And, and, and Juggy was a real outlier. He was, he was uptown in Harlem. He wasn't down in the Brill Building, although, you know, he was putting out records with those same musicians and same songwriters. And it was all sort of like the current day iteration of a hundred year old music business in New York, you know, the Tin Pan Alley thing. Uh, and, and music publishers ruled the roost and, and, and the record labels that put out these 45s were often either subsidiaries of the publishing companies or, you know, being towed along by them. Um, and, and, you know, in uh, 1962, I think Carol King and, and Jerry Goffin had a, a dozen chart records and, and the uh, Aldon Music had 140 chart records or something just ridiculous like that. Uh, so it was a thriving uh, uh, community that was firing on all cylinders. You know, they were writing stuff that worked, that people were responding to, and the the, the money was flowing in, and, and, and that just, like, juiced the whole thing so that the creative spirit fed it. Because this was not a, 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 you know, artistic enterprise, even though there was art involved. This was a commercial enterprise. These people made these records to sell them and to make money. They, they, these weren't hippies in San Francisco taking LSD doing a social experiment. These were the guys that were the descendants of the Tin Pan Alley hustlers that started that whole music business racket, you know, back around the turn of the century. And Burns definitely got his share of licks in. I think he had 51 chart hits over seven years, 19 in 1964 alone. Kind of steps in for, or definitely stepped in for Lieber and Stoller when Jerry Wexler ran them off from Atlantic. And right now I want to play a song by an important artist who didn't hit with this record, but this is art. This is a record that wasn't really a hit, but this is Tammy Montgomery doing if Burt Burns' If I Would Marry You. was Tammy Montgomery, later better known as Tammy Terrell, songwriter, song singing partner of Marvin Gaye at Motown, doing Burt Burns' If I Would Marry You. And, you know, they weren't driven by artistic concerns, but boy, did they sneak in some masterpieces in there. And and, and that one's almost like a Bacharach style song. Burns has a tendency to repeat a lot of motifs and themes. And that's kind of an outlier for him. Just a really, really great tune. But I want to talk about his relationship with Jerry Wexler and how he comes in and, and for a while becomes Wexler's golden boy and really saves the day at Atlantic Records. True. You know, uh, when I first started work on the book, I called Jerry because everybody in the business <clears throat> associated Burt Burns with Jerry Wexler. 
uh, Jerry Wisburns, his mentor, his rabbi, his best friend, uh, his best man at his wedding. You know, they're, they're, they're strong identification. But I called up Jerry and I said I was going to start work on this book. And he said, I don't know where he's buried. But if he, but if I did, I'd piss on his grave. How much? Oh, you know, typical Wexler colorful language and everything. But uh, behind that, oh, and I, and I should say, you know, when I first got uh, the first three chapters done, I called Wexler and told him that, you know, I have some writing, and he said, let me see it. And I fed exit to him, and he called me back. He was still holding the pages in his hand. Uh, he'd ripped it open and read it just as soon as he could. And, and, and he wrote and he called up and said, this stuff is, uh, mesmerizing. He said, he, he loved words. This is mesmerizing. This is fantastic. I said, well, gee, Jerry, does that mean you're going to help me? He goes, fuck no. So <laughs> that was Wexler for you. Uh, and what happened with Wexler is, is the whole denouement of the book. Uh, and you know, I was, I would say likewise, Ahmed Erdogan, uh, resisted my most insistent efforts to conduct an interview when I was researching the book for mm, four months. And, and he never told his poor secretary what the deal was. He would just tell her, Oh, tell him, I'll call him next week. And I'd call her up again. Well, you know, didn't I, didn't he call? No, no, he didn't call. Oh, well, I'll talk to him again. I'm sorry. You know? So, uh, um, Burns and the Atlantic guys went into partnership um, to form a, a label called Bang Records, which but was before an we get to that, I want to talk. Yeah, about I mean, the, this is the the, 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 the the what happened with Wexler is was where, where that's at. Yeah, and I want to say and that then, from the know, very end. But right now, I want to talk about how he came in, took like Wexler had run off Lieber and Stoller because they were foolish enough to do an audit, and it found out that Atlantic <laughs> owes him eighteen thousand dollars. And Wexler tells him, "Look, do you want to keep the money, or do you want to keep working with us?" And they're like, "Oh, we want to keep working with you." And he says, "I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to keep the money and fire you," <laughs> which is just classic Wexler. And you know, Wexler, if if you follow this kind of music, Wexler's the villain in the Lieber and Stoller story. He's the villain in the Stax record story where he claims he inadvertently absconded with all of the master tapes of Stax Records. Uh, he's the villain in the Muscle Stroll story, he breaks up Rick Hall and the Swampers. And this is the one story where Jerry Wexler does not win the day. And that, that's probably the reason he held such a grudge against Burt Burns. But first, let's talk about the work that Burns did at Atlantic for Wexler that made Wexler like him so much and want to go into business with him. Well, I got to say, uh, you know, uh, hearing you uh, describe Wexler's associations like that uh, is stunning. And, and uh, 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 you know, the guy that we all knew after he sold Atlantic and retired and become this sort of a bunkular Hemingway type guy, uh, it was so charming. I mean, there was nothing more fun than to hang out in, in, in Jerry's hotel room with him after dinner and smoke a couple of joints and listen to him talk story. Uh, but that's not the guy that everybody remembers who was back there then. You know, Jerry Lieber was most instructive about that with me. Uh, he, he thought of Jerry Wexler as, as Sammy Glick. 
uh, <laughs> from yeah the Bud Schulberg thing. What makes Sammy run? And 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 you know you can trace his sort of distrust of the business, like uh, uh, insisting on on the sale of progressive music, the publishing wing, or, or even before that, selling the publishing to Shaboom. They get their first hit, and what does Wexler do? Sells the publishing. Uh, and then they sold the whole publishing wing in, in 1960, and they were trying to sell. That's what I say. That's uh, you know, shake, rattle, and roll. It's a nice little sack of, uh, of songs, and, and Hill and Range was glad to buy them. Uh, and and then they, they spent a long time trying to sell the label to ABC. And then there was a, 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 a you know a finished document uh, I found. Uh, the the fact is the sale almost was completed. Uh, ABC had agreed to terms, and all Atlantic had to do was warrant that they paid all their royalties. Oh well, oops, uh, they couldn't do that, could they? <laughs> so, uh, but that was 1963. I mean, you know that Wexler was just he didn't see any future in 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 this business. And then there's the whole thing about merging with Lieber and Stoller, and that gets completely nuts. We're getting off. So what did Wexler see in Burns? Was Wexler saw somebody that could play the music, who could sing the music, who could communicate with the musicians. Wexler was a fan. He was a, had a great ear and a fantastic instinct, and he loved this music, but he couldn't play a goddamn lick, and he never wrote a song in his life by himself. All his songwriting credits are, you know, co-writes with other people. Uh, and, you know, like uh, the Aretha Franklin uh, uh, song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Wexler just gave the title to uh, uh, Goffin and King, and, and they wrote the song, but it's shared three ways. Shouted it uh, out of a moving car at them. Pulled over, by, pulled over the sidewalk, yeah, and then, <laughs> hey, hey, Jerry, come here, I got a great title for you. Uh, but the, you know that's a that's a legal precedent now. The, the Wexler rule title's worth a third. Uh, but uh, he he saw in Burns the, the, this younger guy uh, who was completely capable musician on piano on guitar. He had this funky nylon string guitar that he could play the holy hell out of, and it, it's on a lot of his records. You can hear it on like that Gene Pitney record and, and uh, some of the Hoagie Lands records. Um, and he could talk, musician talk, you know? He, he, he knew what a fifth was. He knew what a you know, flatted note was, and he, he, you know? So he was under the hood where Wexler wanted to be. And then there's the other thing. And this, you know, you can hear this yourself. The guy made these great sounding records. They weren't radically different from the Lieber and Stoller records or, or some of the other things that were going on. But there was just enough difference that it, it had enough of his character in it that they have a sound of their own, and that sound holds up to this day. It's remarkable how, how, how vital and robust those records remain. Absolutely, and let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about his work with Solomon Burke and uh, Garnett Mims and Barbara Lewis and others. And yeah, so Herb Burns comes in and basically revitalizes Atlantic Records. His run of hits with Solomon Burke keep them at the forefront of the soul movement. He gets one last big, big hit for the Drifters with Under the Boardwalk, does a number of songs that don't hit, but at the same time, he's also working with United Artists, and like you said, Scepter and Wand, and it's just getting around all over the place. 
And then he's very early on a plane to London to investigate these massive royalty checks that all of a sudden are coming from England. How does he hit the scene in the UK? Well, uh, he was w with Robert Mellon Music, the publishing company that had an office in 1650 uh, uh, Broadway, and he'd been working there since 1960. But Bobby Mellon was stationed in London, and he had offices there uh, and a lot of contacts in the um, British record industry. Um, Phil Solomon was one who uh, was associated with uh, talent management and A&R work. But anyway, uh, he brought Burns over to London in 63 and had arranged for him to do some sessions for Decca Records in, in London. Uh, Solomon, as I remember, was uh, involved in, in hustling up the talent. And he banged out a, a, a bunch of sessions very quickly, like two days. He went through a half a dozen acts or something like that um, in the uh, uh, DECA studios. Now, you have to understand the British record industry in 1963 was entirely different from the American. I mean, the uh, engineers wore white lab coats, okay? And the uh, sort of um, New York records were just an entirely different world. I mean, those guys uh, used uh, uh, reverb, they used uh, uh, compression, they had all kinds of, of uh, technical uh, issue, uh, things that they applied to them, where the English were much more reserved about those issues and saw it as much more of a scientific thing of reproducing sound rather than creating new sounds, right? So the, the, the whole New York American record thing was unknown in England at that time. I know when he came back in 64 and, and had um, the Irish group Vim in the studio for DECA, that he walked out in the uh, place where the uh, band was playing during the session and just started smashing a, a, a drum cymbal and, 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 and looking at these Irish kids and going, let's get a groove going here, fellas. And, and they'd never <laughs> seen anybody in the, in the music business, you know, in a, a, a so-called grown-up do anything like that. It really broke the ice. It was like, whoa, this guy's, you know, He's he's on our side, and 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 yeah, they made some great records with Burt Burns, uh, uh, great rock records. I think he understood those English kids in in and and he saw in them the same thing that he saw in the the black kids who were singing his records back in New York, and he knows uh, it, it, it it goes back to you know the whole. Uh, Jewish identity thing of of, of uh, pogroms and 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 you know understanding and empathy, uh, but the, those records are very much of the same built from the same cloth that the Garnett Mims and Solomon Burke records were built from in New York. And he and he's got this eye for talent. Not only does he mentor and he doesn't discover Van Morrison, but he really gives him his first major hit with Here Comes the Night. But he discovers the session guitarist, Jimmy Page, who was well-known in London, but, I mean, those two just immediately hit it off. And Jimmy Page is all over those records that he cuts for them. And, in fact, the one song that was left off the first Led Zeppelin album was a Burt Burns song that they, they were dedicating to him just, just after his death. So just an incredible eye for talent. And um, 
a real role for mentoring and creating a vibe in the studio that the British artists just hadn't seen. And I want to play a version of Here Comes the Night that I hadn't heard before I read this book. And this is produced and written by Burt Burns, but it's not them's version with Van Morrison. This is by Lulu, Here Comes the Night. production of Here Comes the Night for Lulu. He would later redo it for them and have the bigger hit, but really interesting work, very different um, for what he did with them. And that sensitivity and that ability to click with younger artists, he moves very quickly into sort of an elder statesman role with certain artists, like the way Lieber and Solar had worked with him and that whole generation of real building writers. And he, at this point, Wexler and, and the Erdogans and he go in and form a new record label, Bang Records, named for their first names, Bert, Ahmet, Nasui, and Gerald Bang. And he finds this production team that is better known as the Strange Loves now, but I'm talking about Bob Feldman, Jerry Goldstein, and Richard Goddard, and they really take off under his mentorship. What are some of the things they cut and discovered um, working with Bang and Burns? Oh, those guys uh, have been characters on the scene for a long time. But I, I like the, the 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 note about the Lulu record uh, that that them recorded it later. Yeah, like the next week, <laughs> those were recorded back to back by Burns on it on his second trip to uh, uh, London in 1964. But uh, uh, Richard Goddard and and Jerry Goldstein and, and Bob Feldman were uh, songwriters that knew each other as uh, well. Feldman and, and, and uh, Goldstein knew each other as kids, and they they, they met Goddard as they were starting to write songs. And they had a big, fat, juicy number one hit in 1962 with "My Boyfriend's Back," and you're gonna be in trouble. Hey na, hey na na. And that put them on the scene. They were with Roosevelt Music. They had records with the Jive Five. And, and uh, you know, um, there's a whole long, hilarious story about how they became this fake Australian rock group called the Strange Loves. Uh, and um, just bluffed their way into the British invasion and, and were touring uh, with an all-British invasion, Dave Clark Five, you know, I forget, the zombies, you know, and the strange loves. And they just couldn't talk because they were right out of the outer boroughs and they, they didn't have the Australian accent. But they had a whole backstory, and, and it, it was it's hilarious stuff, uh, way too complex to go into now. Somebody should make a movie about the strange loves. Absolutely. Their last night in on the tour, the opening act is a local band of teenagers call uh, and, and and they just rip it up and 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 these guys they go and talk to the parents that night after the concert and say we want to take your kids to New York and make records with them. So they drive from uh, somewhere in you know 
bumfuck Ohio to New York with these uh, three, four teenage kids. And the kids fight so much, they nickname them the Hatfields and the McCoys. They go into the studio, they put a new vocal and a new guitar solo on an existing track that the Strange Loves have already released, by the way, uh, of a Burt Burns song that was called My Girl Sloopy. And they, they changed it to Hang On Sloopy. And bingo, this is the McCoy's number one hit and the big thing on Bang Records in 1965. And, in, and that's, that's where Feldman, Goddard, and Goldstein, you know, is going to blow up the whole thing. You know, Bang, Burt's partnership, and, and this record is just huge. A bigger record than anything that Atlantic had had going up, up until like a little bit later when the Sonny and Cher record comes out. Yeah, and... and- Right out the gate, Bang just has a series of hits, and Wexler had cut some incentives in the deal with Burns, thinking that Burns wouldn't do it, wouldn't succeed in meeting these marks. And and Bang Records succeeds so much that Burns is even set to get a piece of Cotillion music, one of the Atlantic uh, publishing crown jewels. And that sets up this conflict, the big falling out between Burns and Wexler. At, at this point, we got to introduce a couple of characters. Morris Levy, who you know is fictionalized on The Sopranos because he's such a legendary link between organized crime and the music business. Uh, a guy named Carmine DeNoia, or Wassel, who is not a mobster, but knows those guys, as you put it in the book. And he's all over the movie. And, he, and this is a guy who is big and scary. He looks like a good fella. And he loves Burt Burns. When he when he talks about him in the movie, I mean, he's he's kissing his hands as if he's kissing Burt Burns's cheek, and it's very much the same way that like Dee Dee Warwick or the Exciters talk about Burt Burns. These performers who loved him, who thought of him as the White Soul brother, and it's just so interesting that some of these people really really love him, and some of these people, you know, Jerry Wexler. I'm sure if you talked to Neil Diamond today, he wouldn't have good things to say about Burt Burns. Van Morrison's been kind of on both sides of it. If you've ever heard the recordings he made to get out of his contract with Bang. But there's going to be a confrontation. Wexler calls in these mobsters, Morris Levy and his his goons, and Burns has a trump card to play. How does that play out? Yeah, well... um, uh... A complicated personality because on one hand, he was this super upbeat, uh, uh, collaborative, enthusiastic guy who was just encouraging to all the artists and loved the music. And, and, and that's what he gets back from, like you say, people like Sissy Houston and, and Gary Sherman and, and, and people he worked with on that. And on the other hand, anybody that tried to thwart him or uh, uh, curb his ambitions Keep in mind, this is not just a Russian Jew who, generally speaking, don't react well to those kind of uh, situations. But this guy was dying, and and he was in a hurry, and so you know he didn't he didn't hesitate to move forward aggressively, firmly, and decisively. You know, yeah, he ran into problems with the Atlantic guys, ran into problems with Neil Diamond, and 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 you know other people. But uh, what the real trump card was is that through his association with Wazel, and, and Wazel was just, in, you know, Sancho Pancho to Burns. He was at the Bang office every day, and, and he was this, this big, 
uh, uh, gangly lummox uh, who would do whatever it take. You know, if a, if a bootlegger had to have his place broken up, hey, Wassel was on it. Uh, and and Boyt Blaine's, Boyt Blaine's, yeah, Wazel was fantastic. But he'd come to know Patty Pagano, and then even more importantly, Tommy Ebley. And Tommy Ebley was running the Genovese family while uh, Vito was in pen- the penitentiary. Uh, he was the top dog of the of the town's biggest mob at that point, and and the, he and Burns, they 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 had their boats berthed next to each other on the uh, 79th Street Pier. And they spent a lot of time hanging out. And so, you know, Wexler invoking Morris Levy. And, and, you know, Morris Levy was certainly the the sort of front man for the syndicate in the record business. He grew up with all those guys and had been involved with them when he was in in nightclubs in the 40s and, and he, he was kind of the finger puppet in the record business of the mob. Uh, so, you know, when Wexler uh, uh, in, in, invoked the the Morris Levy card, Burns came back with the Tommy Eveley card. And, you know, <laughs> paper wraps rock. Uh, they picked Ahmet Erdogan up off the sidewalk, walking down the street, come with us, and drove him to a meeting where it was explained to him in no uncertain terms what was going to come of his partnership with Burt Burns. Then Wazel and Paddy Pagano visited Wexler at his office the next day, just so that it was thoroughly understood how these negotiations had turned out. And I believe in that meeting, they threatened Wexler's life. And I think more importantly, I think they threatened to break his daughter's legs. That was the one that sort of hung in there for him. Like, they're going to break my daughter's legs. Uh, and I'm not sure knowing Wazel, and I got to know Wazel really well, that wasn't the sort of thing he would say in semi-jest. That, that was the way he talked. Yeah, you be careful, you know. Uh, don't think about it too long or you'll have a second asshole. You know, I mean, it's like that. He liked to talk that way. Yeah. I don't know. He was really a, a, you know, a daughter leg breaker, but you know, yeah, you know, you tend to take something like that seriously coming from Wazel, even if he was kidding, because he'd, he'd, he'd work that advantage with you. Uh, and, and Patty Pagano, now Patty Pagano was a scary guy. Patty Pagano was a knee breaker, a, a, you know, a head buster, uh, he was a made man. He, he was a union official. I mean, these are, they, they, you know, they, they meant to scare Wexler, and they did. I mean, I talked to him like 30, 40 years later, and he was still scared. He told me I should be scared for my life. I told him, man, those people's grandchildren are dead. <laughs> and, and it's true. The, the, the actual tables are real tough on mobsters. Uh, yeah. Tommy Ebley died in a hail of bullets outside his girlfriend's apartment in Queens in 1970, just a three, few years after Burns uh, died. Uh, Patty Pagano, God, he was taken down, and so was his son. His son managed uh, English rock bands, Danny Pagano. Uh, I think Black Sabbath. I can't remember which ones, but yeah, you know. And and his son was uh, still in the family business. The Paganos uh, were, were quite well known. <laughs> but yeah, they, 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 that was how the Bang partnership ended. And, and you know, I'll tell you the the proofs in the pudding is there was no litigation. Understand? Nobody sued anybody about this at all. 
man, the papers just changed hands and it was done. And, and believe me, you know, the, the only thing that you can do in the record business that doesn't require lawyers is bring in mobsters. Ouch. Ouch. And let's hear one last song. And this is Arsenio Rodriguez, the father of the Mambo, one of the great Afro-Cuban musicians and a big hero of Burt Burns. Burt Burns got to produce him towards the end of his life doing Hang On Sloopy. Arsenio, or Arsenio Rodriguez, doing Hang On Sloopy, produced by Burt Burns. This is the man who created the Mambo beat, the, the, the Devil's Rhythm, as he called it in Spanish. And, you know, great closing of the loop for Burns. I'm sure that meant a ton to him. But I want to talk a little bit more about what he did at Bang before we wrap this up, because not only did he have the Strange Loves team as sort of protégés of his, but Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich um, become protégés of his, and they their relationship has fallen apart. They write their last songs together and share in Phil Spector's downfall uh, with Ike and Tina Turner doing River Deep Mountain High and never really click again once they're divorced. But they find a young songwriter who's been struggling and not making any headway in the real building, had a single in Columbia that went nowhere. And I'm talking about Neil Diamond. And these two produce a run of hits on Neil Diamond with Burt Burns as sort of the executive producer Mentored, I'm talking about Cherry Cherry and Solitary Man and others, and it all falls apart because of a difference of opinion about what single um, Neil, Neil Diamond should release. And also, for, for a sense of fairness, where he felt like Ellie Greenwich, who Barry and Greenwich had cut Neil Diamond in on an equal partnership, which is unheard of. Almost everybody who just signs a younger talent, younger in their career, gives themselves the trump cards, but they didn't do that. And the Net outcome was Neil Diamond was able to to cut them out, and Burt Burns wasn't having it. Mr. He was a very loyal friend, and 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 Jeff and Ellie were friends. They were they 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 weren't mentors or proteges or anything like that. Um, the, the those guys walked on the scene shoulder to shoulder, and and the the they were involved in each other's personal lives, and 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 Jeff Barry and Burt Burns. You know, bought motorcycles together and would run off and shoot pool when they should be writing songs. And so it, it, it was definitely personal. And, and uh, I, I, I think Neil Diamond pissed everybody off. But, uh, you know, he, he fingers Burns as this um, villain in his career. I, I don't know why, but he, he, he wrote the liner notes to a CD reissue of his bang stuff and, and, you know, thanked everybody like that he could think of, including like the, the kid who brought the tea to the sessions. I don't know, but how he failed to mention Burt Burns name is just, you know, so obvious to anybody who's aware of it. Um, and, and I gather this Broadway bound musical that, that he's working on uh, makes Burns out to be this big villain. I mean, I, I don't. I don't get it. Uh, the guy had been around for years. He hadn't been able to get arrested. 
and uh, Jeff and Ellie rescue him from the scrap heap of uh, Tin Pan Alley, and Cherry Cherry. I mean, is that a Burt Burns record or what? I, I don't know who, who um, what Neil Diamond's story is on that. I know Artie Butler did the arrangement and that they did a full-blown production of it that uh, wasn't as good as the demo, so they went back to the demo and put that out. And I know that Burns was involved in every step of the way. He wasn't just the record company executive. He was in the studio. He's singing on the records. You can hear him. He's such a ragged voice. Uh, hand clapping, whatever, man. He was all the way part of that Neil Diamond project. He didn't take the credit for it. He didn't write any songs for it, although there, you know, there's some of that in there. And Diamond was supposed to be the songwriter, and Burns was stepping aside for that. So we're burying Greenwich for crying out loud. You listen to those bang records, man. I mean, Ellie Greenwich lights them up. She's doing all the background vocals, and you know, her her spirit just infuses them with this this sunlight. Uh, and 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 they those guys between the three of them. They lifted up Neil Diamond and carried him to wherever he was going to go, you know, put him on a platform for him to become this thing, Neil Diamond. Um, and he never looked back. Uh, he, he, he took unfair advantage of uh, uh, Jeff and Ellie, which is sort of like a slave revolt, except he wasn't a slave, like you say. I mean, he was a 50-50 partner, uh, unheard of. And in actuality, the the... He got his contract voided. I remember this very clearly uh, because the same lawyer had represented him, Jeff and Ellie, Bang Records, and Atlantic Records, who distributed Bang. Uh, Paul Marshall. Well, Paul Marshall was like the only music business lawyer at that time. He was the general counsel of Atlantic. He represented the Beatles when they first came to this country. I mean, he was just, you know... The music business lawyer it wasn't uncommon for him to be involved in everybody's business. And nobody, by the way, ever accused Paul Marshall of not being ethical and above board. That's why he could do this. But a judge took a look at that and went, oh, my God, and just voided Diamond's contract. And he, he walked clean, free and clear. But not before, however, Bert threatened his life with his mobster connections. And, and you know... It, Neil had a nightclub show smoke bombed or stink bombed, I think. Uh, and uh, uh, his manager got mugged outside the uh, nightclub. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, 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 Burns was bringing out the brass knuckles. Uh, and, and his final uh, sort of meeting with those guys uh, took place on the, the Friday uh, before the Saturday that he died. Yeah, and, and it, it comes fast. And uh, he's also worked with Van Morrison in this period, who he picked up off the scrap heap after them fell apart in Los Angeles. He goes to Ireland and finds Van Morrison, brings him to New York, where they cut Brown Eyed Girl and TV sheets and the whole, you know, Bang Sessions put out an album, Blowing Your Mind, with Van Morrison that wasn't quite the album Van had in mind. But, you know, obviously the single was a massive success. But then, like you say, December 30th, 1967, you know, death finally comes from Robert Burns. He's been expecting it for a long time, but but he dies in his hotel room. 
Van Morrison is going to have to record dozens of songs that he made up on the spot to get out of his contract. Like you said, Neil Diamond got it voided by a judge. But this is one of the few stories where people looked out for Burns' widow, and Jeff Barry and Tommy Eberly actually got the combination of Burns' safe and made sure that $70,000 of cash make it into Burns' widow's hands. That's kind of unusual because, you know, Van Morrison in the movie Bang paints it as kind of a deal with the devil that he says the last few times he saw Burns, he's sweaty and anxious and complaining that he's busy with work and can't write songs anymore or doesn't have time to write songs. And, and you know, there's this Faustian feeling the way Van Morrison tells the story. And it's hard to say how it might have played out down the road. But this is one of the few instances of a musician working with the mob and not getting badly burnt that I can think of. So, you know, I spent a lot of time looking into that whole angle. Uh, and it, it's interesting. The uh, mob were an ever-present fact of life in that music business time. Um, and the the thing that people told me about working with the mob was that they paid you what they said they were going to pay you which differentiated them substantially from everybody else you worked for. <laughs> so in an odd sense, these guys occupied a moral high ground. And, you know, they'd say, hey, you know, every so often, you know, you ended up doing something for somebody that you didn't know why you were doing it, but there you were, you know, at this club and nobody was there or something, you know. And every so often you had to look the other way, you know, you walk into the wrong room. But otherwise, they were loved the music, they loved having good times, and they treated these guys like they're gold and and and, and uh, paid them like I said what they said they were going to pay them. <laughs> Crazy uh, concept. Goderer uh, uh, tells a hilarious story that's in the book about Sonny Franchisi, and Sonny Franchisi was all over the record business. He was dating Dion Warwick. Uh, uh, similarly, Tommy Vastola, there's another guy. Wow, you know, what a thug, what a punk, what a, what a you know, he'd beat him up himself. He didn't have to have underlings do the, uh, that work. And he was a manager of Jackie Wilson. He was a partner in Queens Booking, which was the big deal Black-owned uh, booking agency, Ruth Bowen, uh, had all the great acts from Aretha Franklin on down. And, you know, they all knew Tommy Vastola was her partner. So, you know, cluck, cluck, cluck. Uh, it, it, it's funny because I do these interviews and these people would, you know, talk about the uh, rhythm and blues scene. And then I'd start mentioning names like Tommy Vastola and they'd go, oh, and the curtain would widen, and suddenly you'd see a whole other part of the same scene. I remember Jeff Berry looking at me and saying, oh, they told you about him. And that was the beginning of like a whole different dialogue. So everybody knew they were there, and they were always there. And, 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 and it was always sort of brushed aside and played under. I remember Wexler telling me, Oh, it was just a tinge on the fringe, you know. Ah, bullshit, you know. They were part of the whole thing. I mean, think about the underground economy of, of, of records, right? Uh, uh, how many records did you press? How many did you sell? 
how many did you send back for full credit, right? Yep. Somewhere you get you can interrupt that chain. You know, you can take the records out and give them away, or you can put them back in the chain and return them for credit. You know, Morris Levy, uh, uh, the, the famous owner of Roulette Records, has a flood in an upstate uh, uh, New York uh, record store, and he calls the the uh, manager and he says, "Don't let the insurance agents in. Wait for an hour." <laughs> And an hour later, a truck shows up, 15-footer, you know, and they start loading records into this flooded basement. <laughs> it's all about the inventory and the accounting. Well, Joel, this has been great. Um, this is Joel Selvin. The book is Here Comes the Night, The Dark Soul of Burt Burns and the Dirty Business of Rhythm and Blues. And the movie is Bang, the Burt Burns story, which you worked on as well. So thanks so much for coming on and telling this important story. And thank you for the work you've done to – um, record and document and share the legacy of Burt Burns, who had really been overlooked and is just an absolutely key figure in the history of American music. Well, kind of you to say so. I'm very proud of that book uh, for so many reasons, and not the least of which is the uh, efforts of um, his uh, son and daughter, Brett Burns and Cassie Burns, to you know bring his memory up and, and let people know about the work of Burt Burns. And I think they're responsible for infecting people like Paul Schaefer and, and, and uh, Steve Van Zandt, who drove uh, uh, Burns into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and it's, it's all been a, a really, you know, kind of great effort, uh, you know, spurred by this fa the fantastic records this, this guy made. And I, and, I, and I certainly appreciate your interest. Well, thanks so much. Hopefully we can have you back on and talk about Sly Stone or Altamont or any other great books sometime. <laughs> Anytime, Nate. All right. <laughs> Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Ted Joya to discuss the birth of jazz in New Orleans. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 